They're robots that transform into dinosaurs. It's win-win. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our issue this time around is Transformers number 27, which came out on this date, January 13, 1987 with an April 1987 cover date. It has a cover by Herb Trippy, which shows Trypticon barreling through the forest while people run, and he is confronted by, the few dino, by a few Dinobots. The title of the story is King of the Hill, and our creative team is Bob Budiansky, writer, Don Perlin, penciler, Ian Aiken, and Brian Garvey, inkers, Janice Chank, letterer, Mel Yamatov, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. We begin in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon with two students and a professor examining what looks like a huge dinosaur track. One student, Rachel, wonders what kind of dinosaur it is, and the professor says it actually isn't from a dinosaur and looks like it was made by something mechanical. They continue to hike and are about to head back when they spot what looks like a pterodactyl flying through the air. They begin following it, but it gets away. Soon, at a truck stop 150 miles to the southeast, a man is getting coffee, and as the waitress pours, she watches that same pterodactyl steal the tanker off the back of his truck. The pterodactyl is the Dinobot Swoop, who is taking his tanker back to the rest of the Dinobots, whom the caption boxes tell us seceded from the Autobots in issue number 19. Meanwhile, off the Florida Keys, on a small uninhabited island, or what appears to be one, Ratbat sends a communique from Cybertron saying that he's the fuel auditor and he's reevaluating the Decepticon's mission on Earth. He's closing the space bridge between Earth and Cybertron, effective immediately as part of a measure to save energy. Shockwave protests, saying that they need the bridge to transport weapons and supplies. Ratbat replies that the amount of energy consumed by the bridge is much bigger than what they're bringing in. Shockwave blames Megatron for that, and it should be noted that in issue number 25, Megatron died and Shockwave became the new leader of the Decepticons, and that under his leadership there won't be such inefficiencies. Ratbat just says that they have to make sacrifices, and Shockwave then asks to use a bridge at least one more time to attack the Ark, which is the Autobots' base. Ratbat says okay, but it has to work, because if it results in wasteful energy expenditure, he's pulling the plug. And at the Ark, the Autobots are trying to figure out who their new leader is, and as they are deciding between four and five of them, Grimlock, who is the leader of the Dinobots, interrupts saying that he should be leader because he is strongest of them all. He demonstrates his strength, and the Autobots who are meeting soundly reject him. He then walks away telling them that he'll show them who's really boss. 
Back in the woods, the students and the professor camp out, and Rachel spots a weird light coming from the middle of the woods. She grabs her flashlight and sees the space bridge, which brings with it Trypticon, the ultimate Decepticon killing machine. Rachel runs before she is either spotted or squished, and Trypticon transforms into several robots as they spot the Ark and prepare to attack. They fire a sonic scrambler missile, which messes up the Autobot's physical functions, and then they begin their attack. The battle begins in earnest, and both Rachel and the Dinobots are drawn to it. Rachel comes face-to-face with Grimlock, who turns and leaves, and then she is grabbed by a Decepticon. At the Ark, the battle rages, although the Dinobots have not yet joined, and Wipeout, who had abducted Rachel, brings her before Trypticon, who is about to kill her when Grimlock springs into action and attacks, and attacks Trypticon. The other Dinobots join in, and they, this gives Rachel the chance she needs to get away, as well as the other Autobots the chance they need to regroup. They drive Trypticon back, and he retreats. Just then, the space bridge appears, and Ratbat tells Trypticon that he's succeeded his energy budget and has to return home. He does. Rachel's professor and fellow students find her, and she's astounded that they didn't find evidence of dinosaurs, but instead found something much more while in the Ark, having proven his worth, the Autobots appoint Grimlock as their new leader. While I never did own the actual issue where Optimus Prime died, and I did get a copy of issue number 25, which is called Megatron's Last Stand, I know that it's around this time that there is serious divergence between the comics that were on the newsstand and the cartoons that were on television. Now, I'm working from my memory of 30-plus years ago because I didn't feel like re-watching old Transformers cartoons or actually doing research. But I remember that Transformers the movie came out, the action switched to Cybertron space, and a few decades into the future, while the comic just kept going in the present day. Furthermore, the death of Optimus Optimus Prime in the film is way different than in the comics, and the leader chosen there is Hot Rod, who becomes Rodimus Prime, who is part of a wave of futuristic-looking Autobot toys that would come out in 86 and 87. I had more or less stopped collecting Transformers at this point. I do remember that my friend Chris had Rodimus Prime, but by this time, most of my attention was on G.I. Joe. The Transformer comics, I think, began I began buying them because it seemed like it went hand-in-hand hand with buying the G.I. Joe comics. My friends had them as well, although I don't remember them talking about them or combing through back issues as much as I did with the G.I. Joe comics. It's an odd period for the Transformers series anyway, from what I gather. Left without a leader and not following the continuity set out by the movie, Bob Budiansky has the opportunity to do what he wants or what he can with the characters that he has, and I think that he does a pretty good job here, even if I don't know if he gets the same level of recognition for his work with a licensed property that Larry Hama does with the G.I. Joe series. You have a story where both sides are dealing with the aftermath of traumatic events from previous issues. I think 26 had a character with named the Mechanic who returns in our next issue, 28. And that means that the Autobots have to choose a leader, while the Decepticons have Shockwave, who really has been gunning for the position of leader ever since he showed up at the end of the original miniseries. Grimlock is kind of a brute, to be honest, and his dialogue through much of the issue is very Hulk smash. But then again, I guess that's supposed to show how much of a difference there is between him and Optimus Prime, and how that difference will wind up causing conflict and tension between him and the rest of the Autobots. And there already was that, as the editor's note told us. I remember the Dinobots kind of being a big deal as far as the toys were concerned, as it is 
because they were one of the first sets of specialty toys to come out from the line. I don't think I actually had any of them. I do remember having a few Insecticons, though, which I think came out around the same time. Again, my memories of what I got when regarding the Transformers are a bit fuzzy because I didn't have as many of them as I had G.I. Joe figures and vehicles. So anyway, the story is really solid. For someone who's coming in more or less as a newbie, both 30 years ago and today, I wasn't lost. Yes, I knew Optimus Prime and Megatron were both dead, but Budiansky does a very good job at getting us that information and keeping us up to date without having to do a huge info dump. One thing I'm not sure of, though, is how much humanity knows of the Transformers' existence. It seems that Rachel and the humans are just basically a story device in the issue, of course, but they don't know much about everything. But I've read in other places that the existence of the robots wasn't exactly a secret. Then again, not everyone is fully aware of everything that goes on in the world, even if it has to do with giant alien robots. Speaking of giant alien robots, how great is the plot device of Ratbat as basically the bean counter of the Decepticons? I honestly can't remember that Cybertron and Earth had a connection. In fact... It's the space bridge here, and the, and I didn't realize that the Decepticons were in communication with their bosses out in space. To be honest, it actually makes for a good story because I think you can do a lot more of it. Um, I know it's not one for a, a one for one comparison here, but a number of later, years later, Jim Lee would create the Wildcats for Image. And that was a war between two alien races and how that war is being fought on Earth, but also in their home planet. And the main difference here is that um, the, char- the characters in Wildcats were superheroes, so their ability to hide and function on Earth wasn't that big of a deal. And they've been off from their, cut off from their home planet. In fact, I think I remember reading one issue years down the line, I want to say Alan Moore was writing it, but don't quote me on that, where they went back to that planet and the war had actually been over for quite some time. There's some other stuff involved there, but I, I, but I bring it up because I do say that I like the idea of this war on Cybertron still raging and what's going on isn't completely disconnected from Earth. And to leave a, have a character who's basically the bureaucrat come and restrict the Decepticon's operations is great. Uh, it's funny in a sense, but it provides some pretty good complication that you don't usually get in a comic like this. Art-wise, this is much, much better than what I have been seeing in prior comics, which at this point had only been G.I. Joe and the Transformers, a series whose art was pretty subpar. Don Perlin's robots look like robots. They bear a pretty good resemblance to the toys that they are modeled after. The action is well-drawn, dramatic, and he's not afraid to use close-ups. And... We don't have that monochromatic robot thing that we had going in at least a few of the issues of the miniseries. I believe that with the exception of the last two issues of Transformers that I will cover toward the end of the series, Perlin will handle the art, and overall it's really solid. And I did buy Transformers number 28, which features the return of that villain named The Mechanic, who was in 26. I got 26 at one point in a back issue bin, that's why I'm not covering it here, because I'm trying to cover books that I bought off the stands as opposed to in the back issue get bins. But we are going to have to wait on that because next time around, I'm going to start covering the other comic I started buying at this time of year, and that's G.I. Joe. Right now, though, I have to take a break. So I'll be right back. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Gary. Plain, simple, Gary. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. 
The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfish, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. So... I'm not sure why this memory is so implanted in my brain, but it's around this time in 1987 that the Giants were making their first Super Bowl run, and they would eventually defeat the Denver Broncos on January 25th, 1987 in Super Bowl 21. I actually have a copy of the program. Anyway, this reflection is not going to be up of the first Giants Super Bowl run because I honestly don't remember that very well. I may have watched a part of the first quarter and then was sent off to bed, as was the case during much of my childhood. What I do remember, though, is that right around the Super Bowl weekend, which was about two weeks after this issue came out, one of my local radio stations, WBLI, was having some sort of themed weekend, and they somehow tied it to the Super Bowl. I, maybe they're playing all the number one hits or something, or doing a replay of their 100 best, six best songs in 1986 countdown, which is what they would do on New Year's Eve. I honestly don't remember. I just remember that this was right around the time that I sort of discovered the existence of music. Yes, music had always been there, and I was well aware that my parents had musical tastes. They listened to the radio, and they owned records, and they owned tapes. But I rarely, if ever, discover music on my own. My music collection at the time was a handful of Sesame Street records that had been passed down to me, or purchased for me. I'm pretty sure that some of the more vintage albums, which I still have, were from my my cousins. Then I had copies of Thriller, I had Born in the USA, and the Top Gun soundtrack on cassette. I also had the Joey Scarberry album with the theme to The Greatest American Hero on vinyl. I still do. My LP collection has grown a little bit since then, but looking over at it right now, not that much. But other people have bigger and better record collections than I do. It's okay. Anyway... I don't remember the circumstances except to say that I spent a lot of Super Bowl weekend playing with my toys in my basement with WBLI on the radio and getting really into what was being played on and and from there wanting to listen to the radio like all the time. In fact, it wasn't soon after this that I discovered that if you put a blank cassette tape into your tape deck and hit record when a song you like comes on the radio, you can tape the song off the radio. This, by the way, would carry me all the way, pretty much all the way through high school. (laughs) Sadly, I don't remember what WBLI was playing that weekend. It's probably Janet Jackson, Peter Cetera. I do remember at one point I did hear Mandolin Rain by Bruce Hornsby in the range. A song that I still like, a group I think was one of the more underrated groups in the mid-1980s, by the way. In the very least, uh, the music of their 1986 album, The Way It Is, has held up a lot better than some of the other lighter pop from the mid to late 80s. This all doesn't seem very significant because it's just me listening to the radio and anyone can do that. Heck, I knew a number of oldies because uh, my mom used to listen to Cousin Brucie on CBS 101. But at the same time, it was significant because it was the first time that I had tried to make decisions about songs or bands on my own without any influence from anybody else, save a DJ. Prior to this, I knew who certain artists were because of my parents or my cousins or other kids at school. 
Now, as a result, I can't say that I made good decisions. A look at the Billboard Hot 100 from that week in 1987 shows that the number one song was Walk Like an Egyptian, which I definitely knew because, well, everyone knew Walk Like an Egyptian in the beginning of 1987. Funny enough, it's actually a pretty good pop song. It's kitschy, but it's a good pop song. I'm sure that BLA was playing, uh, BLI was playing C'est La Vie by Robbie Neville. They were definitely playing Wang Chung. I love me some Wang Chung. I still love me some Wang Chung. By, by, plus, like I said, there was Bruce Hornsby, Janet Jackson, um, Billy Vera and the Beaters. I wrote about at this moment years ago on the blog. Some other stuff off of Madonna's True Blue album. Uh, the man has got that on vinyl. I liked some of this. I ignored some of it. But it would eventually come to often question my ability to make musical choices on my own. Um, I, I, I stopped buying CDs about a decade ago. Both of us did. But I still have all of them in two of those giant books that Case Logic made. I think all in all, when we stopped buying the CDs and just kind of went over to just downloading MP3s, we, we topped out at about 800. Uh, of those that are mine, I can go through most of them and probably tell you the who, what, when, where, why, and how I obtained them. A number of them have stories that start with, well, there was this girl. Others are a case of wanting to have one or two songs but having to buy the entire album because it was well before the days of iTunes and a, and a single wasn't available. Others are there because my friends were listening to that stuff and I wanted to avoid being made fun of, which sounds awful, but that's the truth. But there are those that I bought because I'd heard a song on the radio while in the car and decided I wanted it. It's interesting to me, at least, that it dates back to around this time when listening to the radio and would later be supported by watching a lot of MTV at a friend's house during the summer, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. Um, usually I go out with the, the Joe Satriani piece that I play for the intro, but I'm going to go out with uh, a little bit of Bruce Hornsby and the Rangers, uh, Mandolin Rain, because that's honestly the song I remember the most about January 1987, even though the way it is was the Hornsby and the Rain song that was in the top 10 at the time. I've always liked this song, probably because of all the years I spent playing the piano, although I never learned how to play it particularly. But anyway... I'll be back in about a month with G.I. Joe number 59. As I get uh, on and on in this series and I get to weeks where I will have more than one comic to cover, these episodes will start to get a little longer. I realize that we're coming in at around the 15 to 25 minute mark for the most part. But, you know, there's only so much you can often say about a lot of these books. Uh, and, and as they get a little more complicated, as, as some of the plot lines in some of these books get a little more complex, uh, as we get into stuff like The Punisher and Spider-Man, I'll have a lot more to add. But for now, I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, don't forget to leave feedback where uh, over at Pop Culture at Affidavit over at the Facebook page. And uh, as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Listen to the tears roll down my face as she turns to go. Listen to the 